Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Professor Deep Kapoor, who is director at the Monash Center of Financial Studies. He's also a member at the Investment Committee of Superannuation Fund, REST. Professor Kapoor, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. This is an honor. You're welcome. So you have quite an, uh, a long uh, a career with uh, quite a diverse background in both investment banking, in investment consulting, and now in academia um, as well. But I was quite happy to see that you originally started your career as a journalist, as a fellow journalist uh, in Bombay. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, I mean, I, I would say that two years that I spent as a journalist in Bombay in, you know, long time ago in in the early 1980s. That was simply awesome. I I just loved every second of it. Um, So I had I had just finished my master's degree in in economics and um, sort of accidentally landed a job at this new and India's first business magazine that was modeled on Business Week. And at the age of 23, I was the de facto managing editor and it was great fun you know, building uh, or helping build uh, a media company from from the ground up in a completely new area. So I, I really enjoyed it. And I also was was writing uh, as a stringer for Business Week, which is what kept the lights on. I mean, in, in, in the early 1980s in India, journalists made very little money. It was <laughs> not possible to keep uh, body and soul together on that salary. So no, it was, uh, yeah. And it's, I, I would say that uh, journalism, uh, it's, it's something very close to my heart. Are there any particular stories that you wrote that you're particularly proud of that, or that were uh, um, breaking? You know, I, I don't think, I mean, because it was a fortnightly magazine, we, we didn't uh, you know, it was not the internet age, so there was nothing sort of breaking until the issue hit the stands. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in those days, business was considered boring in India, you know. <laughs> so it, it was all about politics, but there were all these, you know, fantastic stories about how the Ambani's were transforming the, um, the Indian industrial landscape. Uh, I did a story on Dhirubhai Ambani for Business Week. And at that point in time, you know, not many people were really aware of the transformation that was taking place. And, you know, today uh, the Ambani's are the largest industrial conglomerate in, um, in India. 
I had the experience of interviewing Ratan Tata in, uh, you wow. know, he had just, um, you know, sort of uh, come back from the US and started uh, at the, the Tata organization. I was fortunate enough also to be able to comment and, you know, write on the transformation of the Bajaj enterprise, um, being able to spend a lot of time with, uh, with Rahul Bajaj and also with, uh, with a company that today is very well known called Thermax, um, run by the Aga. So, but, you know, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, you're the first business magazine, you're the first uh, group of journalists who want to uh, write stories about transformation in, in business and how it's creating jobs and how India is changing. So it was, it was easy at one level to get access and it was very, very good. And I learned a lot about how business and markets work from, from those two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds very interesting. So how did you get from journalism into investing then? You know, my, uh, my office at Business India, that was the name of the magazine, and it still exists, it's doing very well. My office was just across the street from uh, the Bombay Stock Exchange. And sometimes, you know, in between stuff, I would just walk across and see how the actual execution trading was taking place on the floor it was not electronic you know it was the old style there were people standing around selling buy and sell and hand signals and whatnot did they also have the colorful shirts on to make them stand out? yes <laughs> yes yes that's right so so i think that that sort of got me interested in investing and i uh, and i started to learn more about the history of the indian markets not just the stock markets uh, you know options trading started in india in 1875 when you know People used to sit under trees and make markets and options. So, so that's how it all started. So I ended up going to the Australian National University to do a PhD in economics, but uh, it was all in the area of behavioral economics. So that's sort of the <laughs> background to my continued interest in the investing area. Yeah. And, and I think you then went into investment banking. Are there any sort of war stories that you can share with us? Uh, <laughs> so, um, well, it was just, you know, a sequence of war stories, right? So, <laughs> so actually I, after finishing my PhD, I taught for a year, um, you know, the usual young academic, I'm teaching finance, academics, uh, finance and so forth. And then I spent about two and a half years in investment consulting. Um, and, um, that was with. Tower Sperrin and then Frank Russell in Sydney. And then I left the country and worked with a startup boutique. I mean, I'm a sort of a risk taker. Um, so I did the boutique thing for a few years and then went into Solomon Brothers yeah. and spent 10 years at Solomon. But in terms of war stories, you know, during my time in, in Solomon, we, we went through uh, and I was based in Asia, even though I had global responsibility for some products later on, I started in Singapore. And uh, so, you know, the, um, the Asian financial crisis was quite interesting to see what was going on. And, you know, we, we were very close to a number of governments trying to defend their currencies from speculative attacks from macro hedge funds, um, advising them on how to cope with some of that was uh, quite interesting. 
then of course, uh, you know, we had um, the 98 implosion um, in, in LTSM and, you know, LTSM, uh, many of them were, were my former colleagues from Sullivan Brothers and, right. and uh, that was quite, quite an interesting, interesting event. And then, you know, the 99 uh, NASDAQ and stock market. So uh, it was quite, quite a learning experience. Yeah. And um, so you've seen a few uh, crises during your time. Um, yes, yes. Now, it's always they say every crisis is different. But uh, do you see any sort of um, similarities? Or, or are there any lessons learned from the the, the experience you went through? So I think I think every every crisis is different and um, the response to the crisis also is different. And what I have what I have learned through you know sitting in the middle of trading desks or banks and so forth where you're you're seeing the flows, you're seeing how allocators are responding and so on. What has what has changed today is I mean, I could not have imagined the policy response that we have seen in 2020, you know, looking at what happened, say, during the GFC. I mean, in the yeah. GFC, policymakers, I'm not talking about, I mean, Australia was, you know, on the mark, put a line under the sand and explain to the rest of the world that the banks are not going down. Yeah. But you know, by by guaranteeing bank debt, de facto yes. guaranteeing bank debt. So that was fantastic. But that was not the case in the United States, you know, which is the reserve currency of the world. And we went through that period of time where, um, you know, we didn't know if, you know, who was going to survive, you know, we didn't know. I mean, if you think of it, if if a systemically important bank goes down, then capitalism as we know it, cannot function. Mm -hmm. uh, and we went through a long period of time when we didn't know, you know, I mean, if my former employer, which became Citigroup, I mean, is, yeah. is it going to survive? And this time, the policy response was very swift. And, uh, and that surprised me. So I, I guess the lesson was learned that, you know, you don't dilly dally and dither Mm -hmm. I think this time it was also a combination of fiscal and quantitative uh, stimulus rather than just quantitative. Yes, yes. But even, you know, even the Fed, um, you know, basically coming out and saying, yeah, we'll do whatever it takes, right? I mean, you remember Mario Draghi's comment about the euro, we'll do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. The Fed didn't really say much. It went and did it. I mean, I think, I think going and buying corporate debt was was a big move. I mean, we are going to pay for the consequences further down the road, but um, we would have had a GFC style crisis if the central bankers didn't step in. And then, as you correctly pointed out, the fiscal response was uh, was also necessary. So, do you think that uh, the original decision to to let Lehman fail was then a mistake because it created too much uncertainty? That was a yes. That's right. I think that was a complete mistake. I think, I think Lehman should have been bailed out. We would have, we would not have had, you know, the scarring of the global economy that took place, you know, um, and subsequently a lot more needed to be done because Lehman went down. Mm -hmm. 
But isn't that the nature of capitalism where some firms fail and others don't? I think, but that, that it's it's sort of hard to apply that to uh, an interconnected financial system. So you can let you can let Lehman fail, but you know you have to live with the con- consequences. Yeah, they probably underestimated the the interconnectedness of the whole system. There. That that's right. I mean, you know, I mean, to, today we have all the all the capital requirements and so forth. So today it is sort of hard to imagine a Lehman style implosion taking place because the safeguards have been put in place. So that you know, this is all hindsight, right? I mean, people yeah, were making policy on the fly, and you know, the different parts of the U.S. government were. You know, it's it's new, right? I mean, it's it's like the pandemic. You know, it kind of comes out of nowhere, and then you're struggling. So, are these uh, war stories and your experiences from the crisis something that you uh, and teach your students as well? What what is it? What is your current focus um, at Monash? So, I don't do a lot of teaching. My role at Monash is is to catalyze industry and policy relevant research. So it's sort of research of practical relevance. Australian universities over the years have have focused more. I'm not talking about the sciences and medicine and so on. The the business faculties in Australian universities have over the last 20, 20 years or so become uh, more academic. Uh, you know, it's academic scholarships, it's expanding the frontiers of, of knowledge in theory, for example, or say better statistical techniques and so on, uh, which is completely necessary because you do need to advance knowledge. Yeah. But the pendulum seems to have swung too far towards that, unlike, you know, in the, in the 80s perhaps, where economists were very involved, you know, academic economists were very involved with, you know, with the real world. So if I, if I look at, you know, my head of department, when I started at AMU, Max Gordon, you know, he went on to the IMF. So that, that seems to somehow the pendulum seems to have swung a bit too far away from the real world. So, so my role at Monash Business School is to work with the school and, and try and bridge that gap. Yeah, to bring the theory more towards the practical That's right, side. the applications. Yeah, it's, you know, how do we solve a problem? So that's really my role. So so the center that I look after does industry-relevant and policy-relevant research. Uh, and most of my interaction with students is around that, as opposed to teaching conventional courses. And I also sit on the business school management committee and you know they Mm. sort of work around that i'm i'm a member of uh, faculty member of the blockchain center as well which is outside the business school so it's it's a portfolio of activities all all around this whole question of how do we bring the business school to a position where it's actually solving problems in addition to you know the academic scholarship will remain the core but how to take that and apply that to the to the real world yeah yeah now we hear a lot that um, the pandemic obviously makes it hard for international students to attend uh, universities here mm-hmm. have, have you been impacted by that as well yes we have been but not as much as we thought we would be in the sense that you know of course this came out of the blue and and if you look at the economics of australian universities and you know monash is not an exception to that uh, is that international students provide a big part of our revenue stream and and um, you know we use that to fund research 
and not not just business faculty research but medicine sciences you know and uh, so we have we have been affected but many students who could not come into the country uh, chose to study online from you know china and india and you know elsewhere uh, as opposed to turn around and say if we cannot physically be in melbourne we are you know we are not we're not coming or we are not we'll okay. defer our degree so that yeah that did not happen to the extent that um, one would have thought it would but you know if if this situation doesn't resolve you know for the next 4 years say then i think the consequences will be severe on the revenue because yeah. you know why uh, yeah i mean the the attraction of coming to to australia to study is bundled in with I want to live in Australia because right. you know, I've grown up in Thailand, and it's time for me to experience another another part of the world. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so, so talking yeah. about the pandemic, what what is your take in terms of the impact on on um, investments and markets? I think the pandemic has brought focus to tail risks in a way that you know everyone has heard about tail risk, right? I mean, yeah. some unknown unknown comes and hammers your portfolio. Uh, although in this case you could say it was not a unknown unknown but a known unknown because in 2015 apparently bill gates in um, in an interview <laughs> did warn the world that something like this could happen i i saw that clip i actually put it on twitter at one stage and i thought it was right. quite interesting but you know probably with any event that happens in the future you can find somebody that said something related to it in the past <laughs> i'm not sure how that's right that's right <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah that that is right so um i think there is greater appreciation for risk management in portfolio construction today than perhaps there was and i think things will change i mean you know look look around investment institutions around the world and i'm not talking about the hedge fund industry uh where you know the better ones the successful ones are slavishly focused on risk management but in most investment organizations risk management is kind of buried in there somewhere but if you take a look at a big platform hedge fund the chief risk officer has her own empire reporting to the chief executive officer does not report to the chief investment officer has the ability to shut down a strategy if she believes that this should be shut down for mm-hmm. you know whatever reason and you know this is sort of not directly relevant to the question but i think that is the difference between a successful hedge fund business and an unsuccessful hedge fund business it's about how they manage risk and i think this is this experience last year will bring that to the fore you can no longer have the risk management function uh, be a second class citizen of uh, of the organization uh, yeah. i think the risk management part of the business needs to be empowered it should not in my view be under the control of anyone other than the ceo yeah of the firm Yeah. Now you also just mentioned you are involved uh, um with blockchain um and also mm-hmm. um we spoke a little bit in the past about machine learning learning and artificial intelligence. 
you've been exposed to those sort of techniques for for quite a while um and sometimes yes. i get uh, a little bit of a an idea that people involved in the area are a little bit cynical about the hype around it because they say well we still use the same techniques as 30 years ago what would you say have has changed right so you, you you're absolutely right that um many of these techniques have been have been around uh for some time and uh you know as you pointed out i've been you know uh, i've had sort of early exposure to the area so in the early early 1990s i uh, i ran about 500 million dollars for a sovereign wealth fund on a on a short term fx strategy that that was basically a machine learning technique applied to what was then a lot of data but that's peanuts compared to what <laughs> it is today uh and and uh, you know those if you if you if you think about what machine learning quants deploy today to to data for investment analysis uh many of them have been around since the 90s you know random forest support vector machines long short term memory neural networks they have been around the difference today is of course there is more data that you can apply it to a lot more especially for short term purposes uh maybe not not long term there's a lot more data you can process it a lot faster you know you don't need a supercomputer and wait for two days to get some results out which you had to in the early 90s today you have more computing power cloud computing so the process has you know the application side has developed quite a lot and there's also a lot more talent in that area it's not easy and you know there are there are good and you know just like there is a good fundamental analyst and a less effective fundamental analyst the same applies to the to the machine learning quant applications world yeah so there's there's more talent there's more data there's more computing power but the core discoveries that people are working off are you're absolutely right they are there's not been a lot of evolution i thought it was interesting that you mentioned that that it looks a lot at short term data mm mm-hmm. In that context, do you think that a long-term investor like a pension fund um, has any business getting involved in machine learning? I think it does because even even long-term pension funds do not have the luxury of ignoring what happens in the short term. So let's say you know you're a long-term pension fund and you decide, or you had decided ten years ago that. you know there's all this academic evidence and you know other stuff that value investing is a good thing and your entire portfolio just constituted value stocks uh where would you be today yeah, in trouble that's right so you know you wouldn't have anyone's pension left to manage so i think uh so you know that's a somewhat facetious um answer at one level but i think it's a question of how you use machine learning and ai techniques in investment management so at one level you could be like a renaissance technologies and and you know i i understand the medallion fund is somewhat short term focused and they have a awesome sharp ratio and you know that's sort of one way of using data to drive investment decisions and then you've got warren buffett who if i if the press is to be believed doesn't even use a computer and then and then you know and there's a lot of positioning at 
those two ends of the spectrum. Uh, so you could use, you could say that I'm a fundamental long-term investor and I'm not really interested in short-term trading. So what would you use machine learning for? You could use that to manage risk. Uh, you could use that to extract information from unstructured data that could inform your long-term analysis. You could scan uh, the comments, you know, how many times has someone on the board of company X mentioned climate change in the last 12 months? in interviews, in blog posts, in press, and, you know, and so on. So it is possible to use some of these techniques. Mm -hmm. um, so you may not want to run strategies based on that, but you could use machine learning and AI techniques purely as a research assistant. So when you uh, ran a effect strategy, how did you use machine learning in, in that context? Uh, pattern recognition. It is you know, what, what drives, drives the FX market in the short term. Yeah. It was purely pattern recognition. I mean, today you would call that supervised learning yep. in the sense that, you know, I had my prior. So if the machine came back and told me that rainfall in Argentina has an impact on the Deutsche Mark, I would probably not have used it. Uh, so, so how you, you know, what data you give to the model and, you know, what, I mean, what we found through that exercise was that we got better models than the conventional econometric techniques because machine learning could do, you know, what statisticians, statisticians would call nonlinear analysis more effectively than the statistical techniques that were available at that point in time. So let's say the response of a company's valuation to changes in interest rates is not linear. You know, when, when the discount rate goes from 5% to 4%, the stock price reacts a certain way. It's not exactly the same when it goes from two to one. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. it was helpful in that context. I think um, those nonlinear patterns are, are some of the areas that are potentially most interesting going forward as well. But from an investment perspective, they also uh, throw up some governance questions because if a computer can mm -hmm. recognize a pattern that humans can't, then how do mm -hmm. you build a safeguard around that? Do you see that as a potential issue? I actually don't see that, see that as a potential issue. Uh, you know, the issue is not, and I'll, I'll walk through um, my thinking in a, in a second, but the way I think about it is, you know, AI governance in its application to trading strategies or, you know, not as a research assistant, you know, that AI says, we think this is a pattern and then you as a fundamental investor can decide whether you want to use it or not. But if you're saying that AI has looked at some data and developed a strategy and it's automatically executing that, uh, yes, you need to have governance around it, just like you, you need to have governance around human beings. You know, you've allocated $500 million to, um, you know, five humans to invest in emerging markets using fundamental analysis. I mean, do you not need governance around that? Of course you do. Yeah, but it might be easier to, to understand that process um, because you can sort of uh, look at a change yes. of this, uh, decision. That's right. 
That's right. So, so what you would, what you have to, I think, you know, my view is that let's be pragmatic around it. There's a lot of evidence that, you know, firms using AI for short-term investment decision-making have been enormously successful. I mean, not, not everyone, but there are, there are a few who have been very, very successful doing that. And if you, if you then take a look at, you know, typically how these firms uh, put governance around these types of strategies, you know, what are they doing? They have clear lines of accountability around the development, deployment, and update of the algos. They make sure that the compliance uh, staff have a general understanding of how they operate. Uh, they deploy sufficient resources to manage and monitor the trading strategies. You know what's what's sort of going on, and you know, and this is done all done in real time. It's not, you know, a committee meeting once a quarter and then reviewing what happened. You know, they have you know, real-time records, um, which the chief risk officer and her entourage are, are looking at. And then finally, you know, they, they have stop losses in place. You know, you have to have that. You know, you, yes. you cannot say, oh, you know, this strategy has a 40-year you know, fantastic record in backtests and, you know, yeah, it's had a really bad uh, three months. No, I mean... That that doesn't work. You've got to have that kill, kill, kill switch yeah. process. Yeah, kill process in place. You have to predefine at what point, how much money are you prepared to lose from the peak before you shut it down. You can't give money back to that strategy if it starts working again. So, so I think one has to be pragmatic around it. You you cannot simply just say, well, you know, here's five hundred million dollars and run it because the back test has, you know, you can't back test the future. Your only defense <laughs> against yeah. that is a slavish adherence to a predefined stop loss strategy. Yeah. So once again, it comes back to risk management, putting proper yes. uh, guidelines around it. So what if you do a bit of crystal ball guessing? Do you think that the the future of investing will move towards this type of investing or will it remain sort of a niche area? I think the use of machine learning and AI to assist decision-making will explode. Um, I think using AI and machine learning to manage money where the machine makes the decision and executes everything, I don't think it is going to take over the world. Um, I think there is also limited capacity in in that area. I mean, look at what's been going on in the markets the last seven days with, you know, GameStop and, and whatnot. Yeah, that was interesting. You know, how, how, how is it, you know, I mean, a bunch of sort of retail investors got together and engineered a short squeeze, right? Yeah. So I think, I think there is, for short-term trading, there is uh, perhaps limited capacity. Uh, so it is unlikely to take over the world, but I think in, in using AI tools for risk management or creating new data sets that inform your analysis, that will see, you know, that has great prospects. Yeah. So in your role at Monash, what are sort of the areas of research that you focus on or your students are looking at? Right. So, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the research agenda is relatively new. So we've, uh, we've been focused uh, more 
sort of on retirement issues. Uh, we've done some research on shareholder activism in Japan because that's a good experiment where the government actually encouraged that uh, to understand what impact it has had. And then going forward, uh, and you know, it's a small group of people. Going forward uh, this year, uh, we've got an agenda around uh, around climate-related issues. You know, there's a new market in carbon allowances developing in uh, in China, and mm-hmm. you know, Europe has sort of been around. And with the change in government in the U.S., some of these trends will will accelerate. Yeah. So those are the types of areas that that are of interest currently. Yeah, 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 but you know the business faculty is really large, and people are working on macro issues and and so on. But there are you know too many challenges to think about. Yeah, it's not all machine learning. <laughs> no, no, not at all. So, so you did mention that you're involved in in a blockchain as well. So. Um... Mm-hmm. We, we've sort of seen uh, the Bitcoin going completely crazy yes. on, on the back, mainly, I think, of uh, PayPal embracing it. But, of mm-hmm. course, that's just one application. What are sort of the applications that you're looking at with blockchain? I think blockchain uh, has the the underlying technology of Bitcoin. If you apply it in private mode, I mean, I, I'm sorry to see this, but you you could you would not be completely wrong if you were to think about blockchain as a wonderful fantastic version of google docs right how's that so so in the sense that you know in google docs you make a change to the doc and i get to see it um, almost instantly yeah so so i think i think blockchain as a piece of technology has the potential for improving transactions processing uh, and so forth, but it is still in the early days. I mean, you know, but if you if you want a blockchain run in in private mode, um, which is what Bitcoin uh, in in public mode, which is what Bitcoin is all about, and you need thousands of people with very powerful computers incentivized to solve a cryptographic problem, in order to ensure that the latest version that you're seeing is authentic. Uh, that's at this point in time, that is not really practical, but you're beginning to see blockchain based applications in finance. I mean, the ASX is apparently planning to enhance its trading systems, you know, settlement Mm -hmm. systems using that technology. Uh, It probably could be very useful in bond markets because, you know, settlement in bond markets takes forever. Yeah, uh, relative to stocks. Yeah, so probably OTC markets is more applicable to. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I think I think the blockchain technology has uh, great potential uh, in in private mode, not the sort of Bitcoin type, Ether, Ethereum type public mode. Uh, but it's still still the early days. Yeah. So what do you think about, um, I've seen a couple of reports where there seems to be more institutional interest in cryptocurrencies. Do you think that's a good idea? Um, it's certainly a good idea if you are a good speculator. <laughs> because, you know, there are, you know, there, there, there are 600, you know, there are six, over 600 cryptos around the world. And, uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you have a small amount of money, then it's liquid enough. But if you were to think about it at a more serious level, is so why would an institution be interested 
in crypto. Say Bitcoin is the most prominent example. Yes. You would be interested if you, for a couple of reasons. One is you could say that, you know, this is a store of value. This is an alternative to gold. Um, that I'm very concerned about all the money printing that is taking place. And, you know, that may lead to very high rates of inflation. And, you know, we, we have no protection against it. You know, central banks may lose control of the yield curve and, you know, interest rates could go up by 400 basis points and hammer my portfolio. So you could, you could come up with all these reasons why it's a good idea Mm -hmm. to own it if you believe in that narrative but you have to believe in that narrative to take the first step you know i want to own some it's not you know if, if every institution around the world were to put one percent in bitcoin then you know it would be worth a million dollars so there is that liquidity issue right yeah um the other issue which is a more difficult one for institutions i think is so even if you were to take that point of view that I think for all good reason, you know, it's a, it's a good hedge against debasement of paper money. Mm-hmm. And you've got all sorts of other risks. One is, you know, how do you actually own it? You know, what about custody? Yeah. Um, how do you custodize it? Uh, so there's that. And there are, you know, there's not, I, I would say that there's not a satisfactory answer to that question at this point in time. And the other question is, you know, are the governments going to just sit aside and allow a digitally created currency to take away the ability of uh, banks and central banks to create money and credit? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm neither for nor against it, but, you know, you have to believe in a certain narrative. The cult of Bitcoin. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. So... What is on your agenda for for the remaining of this year? Um, obviously, we're in a very um, sort of strange circumstances. Uh, the pandemic is still raging across the world. We're luckily pretty well off here in Australia. Um, has that mm-hmm. changed any of your plans? Not really. I mean, if you if you sort of you know, I mean, I can do what I do uh, without being on a plane. And I mean, you, you know, if you look at it, the 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 digital natives like you and me have not had a bad crisis. It could have been far, far worse, I think. So, you know, we are still probably able to do 85% of what we do. Um, it's, I do miss the human interaction. So, so it's not been a, uh, it could have been far worse. So I think this year, I'm assuming that it's not going to be very different from last year. And so we're just pressing on with uh, with the agenda. Uh, you know, my agenda at uh, at Monash uh, this year includes um, overseeing the launch of a venture capital accelerator. Okay. Um, that uh, you know that that's sort of part of this plan of bringing the faculty uh, closer to industry and government. So in the second half of this year in collaboration with some partners overseas, we are planning to launch uh, a VC accelerator. And the idea is to put highly scalable startups, early stage companies from Australia and the rest of this region with 
uh, a group of venture capitalists, both, both overseas and local. And then we have our faculty and students who would be available to provide assistance to, to these early stage companies. So, you know, rather than write research reports and distribute them, you know, it's actually saying, you know, we, we have an expert on blockchain yeah. and you are trying to build this blockchain based enterprise, which you think, and we think is highly scalable. And we will surround you with people who are technically expert or, you know, you are, you've sort of designed some new product which requires you to think through issues related to entrepreneurship. And, you know, we've got a couple of academics who are experts in this area. So that's the idea. So, so very handsome. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of my, my big project at the university for, for this year. It sounds exciting. Yeah. You know, which is why I took this job, you know, I mean, I, it's sort of part of my portfolio of, of interests. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, Professor Kapoor, thank you very much for talking to us today. It was great to have you on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate that truly. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.